Hey, everybody. Welcome to You Were Born for this podcast with Father John Ricardo and Mary Guilfoyle. We're a couple of missionaries at Acts 29. This is the podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with transformation in the church. Happy week two of Advent, Mary. You too, Father John. Here we are. Unbelievable. We are uh, rapidly coming in on the great celebration of uh, the nativity of our Lord. 20 more days. Sovereign King of the universe. 20 more days. Who's, but who's counting, right? Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Hey, what's our topic today? Very well, excited about we've this. We've got a, we've got a, I think of a, a very encouraging and um, rousing conversation today. And so today we're going to talk about Benedict, Europe, and getting our hearts aligned to God's. How's that for a mouthful? Benedict, Europe, and getting our hearts aligned to God. Great. Three we things. Better, we better pray because we're going to need some help in this conversation. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Father, we just pray in these Advent days, this time as we reflect at length uh, in preparation for the celebration of your son's nativity and anticipate his glorious appearance again to all the world, that you would help us to have hearts that are like his. For he came not to condemn, but to save, not to destroy, but to rescue. So help us to have hearts that are truly conformed to the heart of Jesus that desires the rescue and the help and the liberation of all those around us. Help us to truly love, even in the midst of seeing so many things which can make us angry or frustrated, so many things that need to be called out. Just help us to do everything that we do with hearts aligned to the heart of Jesus. We ask it all through Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name, in the name of the, of the Father, Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. So, Father John, you've been talking to us here in the Acts 29 team a lot about Benedict and reflecting on Europe since July. Can you just, just kind of open that conversation yeah. up for us? No, I'd love to. Yeah, let me preface it this way. Um, so I'm not a historian. Um, I'm a theologian. But of course, as a priest, like you study history intensely. Mm-hmm. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about some things that we, we're not going to have time to talk about in, the, in the, uh, the length that they demand, but hopefully it'll make sense to people. And, and that's, the, that's the reason for Tina Benedict. So I've, I've been provoked ever since uh, his feast day, which is in July this past year, just to think about why in the world is Pope or St. Benedict, who you know was born somewhere around the year 480 and who dies in 547, I believe it is, why is he the principal patron saint of Europe and why is he the father of Europe? And, and what does that have to say to us right now? Because I think it's actually, history doesn't repeat itself. But it's informative. It's very right? informative. And I think it's particularly informative for us as disciples of Jesus and as the church to see what's happened in the past and to use that as a way to think about what God might be asking of us now. Okay. And I think this, this really fits with um, the season of Advent. You know, we, we allude oftentimes to this expression that Archbishop Sample has, uh, has said publicly on a number of occasions when we've been with him where he says, you know, the Ch- Archbishop Sample's the Archbishop of Portland, uh, Oregon. So he says, you know, the church has three options right now. I think this is so true. We can either capitulate, meaning you can just kind of surrender. You can build a ghetto and say like the hell with the world. 
let them all fall apart or you can engage. And there's really only one option. We have to engage. That's what Advent's all about. That's what the incarnation's all about. Like God engaged the world. God didn't become a man, call a couple people to himself and said, let's erect really strong walls and keep the bad people out. Yeah, hunker down and keep our heads. Because there weren't well, any good people, right? right? So how do you engage? And that's that's really what this is about. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, uh, even even before we started to record, you're like, okay, so practically, what are we going to talk about? It's like, well, the practical is going to be something at the end that we're going to touch on, which I'm not sure people are going to think about as being practical, but it's the most practical thing I can think of. So, Well, well me, uh, go ahead. No, no, go no ahead. we're just going to jump all over each other. So let me, let me just go back to Benedict real quick. Great. So why is, why is Benedict the principal patron saint of Europe? So th there's no such thing as Europe, really, um, at the time of Benedict. There's the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, it ends, you know, there's all sorts of historical debate as to when the quote-unquote ending of the Roman Empire is. But oftentimes, it's sometime in the 5th century, maybe 476, it's often cited. I think that's who um, um, Gibbon um, cited as the date. There's other dates as well. But So roughly, you know, 480, about the time when Benedict is born, the empire collapses. Why is that so significant? Because what we now call Europe was held together by political unity. And the political unity was the Roman Empire. Right. And what that really meant was it was held together by the by Roman law, by the emperor, and especially by the Roman legion. But then the empire falls, and suddenly there's nothing to hold it together. There's just this massive vacuum. And, of course, nature abhors, abhors a vacuum, vacuum, right? So Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Benedict Emeritus, he takes Benedict as his name in many ways because of St. Benedict, principal patron saint of Europe. And in one of the things that he wrote on one of Benedict's uh, or on Benedict's feast days in one of the years when he was serving as our Holy Father, he, he's talking about St. Gregory the Great who wrote the first biography of St. Benedict. And, and here's what he says. He says, straddling the fifth and sixth centuries, the world was overturned by a tremendous crisis of values and institutions caused by the collapse of the Roman Empire, the invasion of new peoples, the decay of morals. But in this terrible situation here, in this very city of Rome, he's speaking in Rome, Gregory presented St. Benedict as a quote-unquote luminous star in order to point the way out of the black night of history. In fact, he goes on to say, the saint's work and particularly his rule were to prove heralds of an authentic spiritual leaven, which in the course of the centuries, far beyond the boundaries of his country and time, changed the face of Europe following the fall of the political unity created by the Roman Empire, inspiring a new spiritual and cultural unity, that of the Christian faith shared by the peoples of the continent. This is how the reality we call Europe came into being. And one of the things that Benedict has stressed over and over again, and, and a, uh, a whole set of folks in Europe as well, who are not Christian, by the way, Europe is a came into existence because of Christianity. That's a huge 
It's a huge reality. So in other words, these really different peoples from very different cultures somehow come into unity, not by politics, but by a vision of life which flows from the gospel, a spiritual unity, a new cultural unity, where the quote-unquote emperor is Jesus, the law is the gospel and the commandments, and the army is very different because the enemy is principalities and powers. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So appreciate all of that. So, so help us to understand, like, what is all of that? What is Europe's history, the role of Benedict, have to do with us? Absolutely here, nothing. Thanks here, for here asking. Today. Let's close. No, no, here, no, here today, like in our country, because even as I'm, even as you just, you know, sit and, and, and uh, ponder the quote that you shared, right, uh, from St. Gregory the Great, there's much in there that resonates. The invasion of new peoples and the decay of morals and this terrible situation and this this black night of history now. I'm not saying that we're in our country in a, in a black night, but we certainly have some things happening in our culture that I think we all understand and see. And I think in, in the back of our minds, we wonder... <laughs> Where does this go? How does this end? Right. How can God turn this around right. in our time here? Right. So um, a friend of ours, I remember having dinner with him and some others five, six, seven years ago now, and he used an expression which I just have never forgot. He says, you know, we're burning our own house down. And he was talking about our culture and our country. Well, that's a striking image. We're... we're we, this, the, the inhabitants of this culture in the United States, in this man's thought, and I, I agree with him, we're burning our own house down. What does that mean? Well, we have um, irreconcilable views of things which are foundational to society, marriage, family, um, whether or not you can like, change your, your very identity. Right. Right. And, you know, people often refer to moral relativism, which is logically self-defeating. Moral relativism is the idea that there's um, there's no such thing as truth, which, of course, is a truth. The evolution of truth, right. No, but but that's a truth. Truth. That's something you believe. So you're claiming there's no truth except for this one truth. So it's logically self-defeating. But um, I I heard a, a guy say one time, well, let's take it out of moral relativism. Let's put it into an image that might be easier for people to kind of think about. Try traffic relativism, like driving relativism. So he, he went on to use the illustration. He says, so imagine you, you live in a city where everybody's just going to have very different understandings of how to drive. And there's no prevailing law. So like you're going to go on red. I'm going to decide to go on yellow. And Bob there, he's going to decide to go on green. You know that happens here in Detroit, Father John. It does happen all day, here in Detroit, day. right? No, but you know, I get you. You're, I understand you're, your point. You're going to yeah. you're going to drive on the left. I'm going to drive on the right. Some people are going to drive in the middle. Is that sustainable? No, it's chaos. Yeah, it's utter it, chaos. It, it can't work, right? Well, it, so we look at that and we're, well, that's just stupid. Well, where we're living right now culturally with foundational laws which are far more essential for the functioning of a society than than traffic laws um are they just can't work so 
no, don't get me wrong. I, I am Eeyore by disposition, I know, but I'm not trying to be like Mr. Doomsday. That's not, that's not what we're talking about at all. I'm actually trying to give a vision of hope and something to talk about for the church right now. You know, we might get a Marian apparition. It, it's happened in the past, right? I mean, Mexico got one and it changed the whole culture. So maybe Our Lady comes to the United States and, and does something. But if things continue as they are right now, it is likely that American culture is going to fail and to fall. In other words, that which has held us together as a country, political unity, it seems like it's not going to last. Now, when? I don't know. Um, That's not the point of this podcast. The point is that as disciples of Jesus and as the church, looking at someone like Benedict and how God used him in the monastic movement, we need to be thinking about what is the Lord asking us to do, and even more especially, here's the practical piece, to be. That's exactly, that was, my, that was my question to you before we started this conversation. How do we practically prepare yeah. for all of this as a church, you know, as a, as a parish, as a, as, a, as a regional church, as a, as a national church, you know, how do we practically press in for that perhaps in inevitability? What does that look like? Yeah, well, let me, so let me give two things that come to mind to me that I'm asking the Lord to help me with. One's a, a vision of what the church should be. And by the church, I don't mean, I, I don't know what it means for parishes because I don't know what parish life's going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years. That's no, another nobody con- knows. That's another podcast. That's something else yep, we've been talking about. We'll do that about. another time. But it's certainly something I can work on with my own heart. So again, just as political unity held the Roman Empire together and then it was no longer there, so political unity has held, you know, our country together. And it looks like, it looks like, might be wrong, looks like it's not going to be here one day. When that happens, when that happens, there needs to be something for people to come to so as to find a home, a place where they are welcomed, where they're loved, where it's safe. This is supposed to be the church, right? So maybe we can just offer two scriptures to pray with in these Advent days when we prepare to celebrate the Nativity of Jesus especially thinking that God entered into the world not to condemn, but to save it. So the scriptures would be, they're both from Matthew. One's Matthew 5 and one Matthew, one is Matthew 9. So when we were in the parish, we used to talk oftentimes about, you know, the image the Lord gave us in a particular parish was we were to be a city on a hill, but that's what the church is supposed to be in general, right? That's what Jesus says in Matthew five fourteen: A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I've always had the image, you've been to Europe and you've been to, to Italy in a special way and you drive throughout Italy and you, you, you usually see these medieval towns built on cities, mm-hmm. right? Or rather built on hills. And, and that's the image that Jesus has here. So you build a city on a hill, why? To be seen. Well, to protect it. And, and right? also to see you, because, because they're illumined. Yeah, so, so you, you know there's a place. Yeah, of, you got ahead of me in, in a, in, because you're brighter than I am. You build it on a hill to protect it, right? Because you want to be above, but you don't light it up to protect it. Like you just said, you light it up so that people who are down them. below, who are lost, 
who are hurting, who are broken, who don't know that there's any place to go for safety, they can look and go, oh, there's lights on there. That's right. That, that might be safe. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where people are safe, where they're, they're, they're welcomed as men and women created in the image and likeness of God. And then they're invited into the transformation that the Holy Spirit can give, but they need to feel safe. Like, welcome to the hospital for sinners, That's right? exactly right. Not a museum for saints, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's making me think, and, and this, so I'm sure people are immediately going into all sorts of places right now. Like, so you're saying that we don't need to call people to change. No, I'm not saying anything like that at all. It's probably just not the first thing we need to say. Like the first words out of Jesus's mouth actually were repent. And that's, that's provocative for us right now. But we need to make sure that people actually know we love them and we care about them. Right. Amen, Father John. So here, here's the thing. I remember talking to a guy some time ago, and he was talking about the parish that he belongs to, and he was saying it was in a, kind of a bad neighborhood. And he says it's challenging to get there. And and then he went on to say, you know, like in inside, but it's a great community. And But unfortunately, like some of the street people, they come in and they disrupt things. And, you know, so we've just had to deal with that. And I remember looking at him thinking, oh, my gosh, deal with that. Aren't you actually supposed to be a place where you you don't discard them? You don't you don't kick them out. I mean, you might you may have to have some practical things to deal with because you don't want someone screaming in the middle of mass, obviously. But don't you see that as a place where the Lord's planted you so actually to do ministry so as to welcome these people into the transforming power of the Holy Spirit so that they can come to know their identity as, as his beloved sons and daughters, to know that, that they matter, that they're loved, that they're cherished. That they're welcome. And, and, yeah, I mean, that, like that's what the church is supposed to be, not a place, not a ghetto, right? Not a place where we build walls and keep those people out. And you had an experience, I know, similar to that with, with a gentleman, right? I did. So uh, when I was in parish ministry, there was a, a gentleman that was actually brought to us um, who, when you talk about someone who had been chewed up by the culture, uh, this gentleman had been chewed up by the culture and uh, he was homeless and he was hungry, both literally hungry for food and hungry for fellowship and love. And he had this tremendously painful story. Mm. And as we invited him into church, it was clear <laughs> to your point, like he didn't look like us, you know, the collective us, quote unquote. He was disheveled. Uh, in all manner of being disheveled. Yeah. And so we attracted a lot of attention. And there were actually people in our parish who were pointing at him saying, why is he here? He doesn't belong here. Mm. Take him out. And this man encountered some disciples who actually have loved him into this beautiful, beautiful place where he's now working and he's dressing like, you know, he, he's got nice clothes and he's got a job and he's got a car and he's, he's self-sufficient and he's, you know, joining clubs and he's serving uh, in the parish and outside the parish, but he was loved by people. But the sad part of that story is, you know, the majority of the people that saw him were so put off by him, like he doesn't belong here. Right. And how sad. Right. You but know, that's, that's easy not, for us to do. That's the, you know, that's right. not what it, you know, that, and to your point, 
who knows who will be crossing the thresholds of, and maybe not even our parishes, maybe our parishes, but even our homes. You were talking earlier, Father John, about, you know, that city sit on a hill. We want people to know that when things get even more challenging in our country, that the lights are on in our parish, but our lights also need to be on in our home and our neighborhoods to invite people in when things not if they get rough. When they do. When they do, right? Yeah, so, so let me build on that. We can close with the last scripture because that's a perfect segue. So the, the main place the light needs to be on is my heart. Mm. So Jesus in Matthew 9, this is a passage I've, I've just, you know, for the last 20 years or so, I have lingered with and been very convicted by. So it's the, it's the passage when it says, you know, when Jesus saw them, he was moved with pity for them, which is not what it says. It's such a lame translation. It's like his, his heart violently or his, his entrails violently recoil within him. And then it goes on to say, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we, we refer often uh, in our own work here and I think probably on podcasts too sometimes to what I think is the greatest commentary ever written on a, on any part of the gospel, which is a, a book by Erasmo Leva Maricacus, a commentary on the gospel of Matthew. And in his translation of this and his commentary on this, he says, you know, there's a way that you can translate the Greek that it's a little bit more visceral. It's not just they were harassed and helpless. It's more like they were mangled and cast aside. The people were, that's, that's what Jesus sees. He sees the crowds, mangled and cast aside, mangled and cast aside by the culture at large, mangled and cast aside by the religious leaders, mangled and cast aside by one another. And then Mary Kakis goes on to talk about, it's as if Jesus turns to the apostles and by implication to you and me. And as he's looking at the crowds, he says to us, do you see what I see? as I see it. And that's the practical piece right now. The Lord's challenge to you and me is, do you really see the people around you the way I see them? And do you love them the way I love them? Because in the them is you. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the Lord says, because the way I look at them, John, is the way I look at you. And you two are mangled and cast aside in so many ways. And my heart violently recoiled within me so much so that I left the throne of heaven, leapt down into a land doomed to destruction, born the Virgin Mary, so as to do all that I have done for you. And now until I am made visible again for all of reality and I put all things new, I'm sending you into that world to continue the work that I began with my resurrection and that I empowered you to do by the gift of my Holy Spirit, which I gave you in baptism and confirmation. But in order for that to happen, you got to have a heart like mine. And I, for one, you got a much better heart than I do. My heart is not like that. It's not, it's not like that for everybody. And the Lord's continually challenging me. And when you talk about practical, I don't know anything more practical than that. Once we figure out, once we have hearts that look like his, that love like his, that see like his, 
that's the hard part. Then we'll figure out what we need to do when it's time to do it. You know, Father John, just the closing part of this conversation is so beautiful and so prayerful, and there's so much that I would love to say. But at the end of the day, what I'm what I'm what I'm experiencing from the Holy Spirit right now is it all goes back to conversion. Every day, just this daily ongoing conversion that my heart would be a place of refuge for those that I see, that our homes would be a place of refuge for those most in need, that our parishes would be that place, a safe house, and um, just a lot of food to think and pray about here. But at the end of the day, it's just this daily surrender uh, to becoming who it is God wants us to be because we are the Jesus. We are the only Jesus that our brothers and sisters will see in these, in these very challenging dark days. Yeah. Amen. When, when the Lord saw us mangled and cast aside, he leapt down and became flesh for us out of love. That's true. And because it's true and because that God is with us, do not be afraid You were born for this. 